Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hilla, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Thanks for being here, guys. Hey, thank you, Chris. We have got the latest on retail stocks, grocery stocks, video game stocks, and more. We will head to Las Vegas to learn how the casino industry is using big data to bring back customers. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar But we begin with the biggest fruit company in the world. (laughs) This week, Apple unveiled the much-rumored smartwatch that everyone's been waiting for. They also introduced two new versions of the iPhone, as well as a mobile payment system called Apple Pay. Uh, Ron Gross, a lot of stuff coming from Apple. A lot of stuff. What is the big headline for you? Well, these things always worry me, because they always overpromise and underperform, and then it's another one of those where they just didn't get it done. In this case, I liked what I saw. I think there are stock has responded well. Um, to me, the biggest deal is the larger uh, iPhones. It brings people um, back into um, the iPhone family who, who need the bigger phones that they just didn't have. Um, and we need that to see the growth um, to support the stock. But then the other things are, are what I'll put in the interesting category. Um, payments is re- are really interesting to me, not because of the revenue or the profits, I think, that will drive um, down to the bottom line, but because it strengthens and widens the ecosystem. If you get merchants all around the world, all around this country, uh, iPhone-friendly, that's a big deal to support that system. I predict success for the Apple Watch just because I, I, I predict failure internally, and I know that it, I thought the iPad was going <laughs> to Internally, flop. you mean within yourself? Within myself. Yeah, I couldn't understand why somebody would buy an iPad. So, so likewise, I can't really understand why somebody would I'm, buy I'm, I'm a little underwhelmed by the watch. However, like, like I'm sure that the world is moving towards wearables. That I'm, I'm fairly sure that I can make that bet. And this is the first salvo that Apple is making in that. And, and it'll be an evolution. Five, ten years from now, I think we'll be thinking I differently. think that's a good point. Salvo, huh? Like, salvo, wow. yeah. It's the first you know, time. I saw, that's where they sold, I saw where they already sold out of the, uh, the, the 6 Plus. So I think to Ron's point there, obviously, there was a market for the big screen phone out there. And, and, and that's the proof right there is it's already, it's already uh, sold out. Uh, yeah, I think we had talked about this earlier in the week. And I, I was prepared to be underimpressed by this watch offering, and, and they they scored there like I am underimpressed, <laughs> unimpressed rather. I mean, it just wasn't something that me to me that I almost feel like they did this because it's what was expected. I would have been more impressed had they come out with something completely different, like hey, you know, you thought we were going to bring a watch to the market, but no, we're like also jaded nowadays. You you could get a computer that you can wear on your wrist that has power more <laughs> more power than we could have ever dreamed of, and we're like, ah, oh, we're not that impressed. But it's interesting because this was a two hour event and for example when it, talking about Apple Pay Tim Cook the CEO at Apple was very mindful that security was on everyone's mind and he spent a lot of time talking about the security of their mobile payment system on the flip side, though, Jason, when it came to the smartwatch, there was no mention whatsoever of how much battery power it had. Yeah. And in the press availability they had after the event, that's the first thing the reporters were asking. Well, wait a minute. He didn't talk about battery power. And lo and behold, it's a watch that you have to charge every single night. Right. And that's a good point. I mean, the first question we all ask is, what is this watch going to do for me that my phone doesn't already do? And really, there's nothing there. I mean, other than just a few little biometric kinds of things. And maybe, you know, there are health nuts out there that will want that. That's fine. I mean, I, I, I looked at this and I thought, you know, this was the first time Apple brought a product to the market 
where I, I absolutely have zero interest in getting one at all. Like if you gave me a if you gave me an Apple, I'd literally give it back. I don't even want it. I wouldn't wear it. So to me, I, I think this is going to be interesting to see sort of the evolution of wearables. I think this is the first effort. If you know, it's an iteration salvo? that will continue. Hey, you know, he said it. He said it first. We're going to steal that word, but I think it is something they will use this to get better. But, I think but they'll does, get does, feedback. Do from people customers. really? What extent do people buy Apple products for the functionality versus the fashion? Well, I, I think mean, you can a get a better question, Samsung though. phone. You get a better computer. You get everything a little bit. I mean, Apple is good. It's certainly up there, but it's it's as much the image as anything else, right? Right, and I, I mean, I think that's the point, really, because at some point you have to say well, this better do something that my phone doesn't do because it's tethered to my phone and I have to have that phone in order to use the watch. It certainly limits their market opportunity there because we know that the world runs on Android, not on Apple. Uh, Ron, I'll wrap up with you on the stock because certainly we saw a little bit of ripple effect, certainly when it came to mobile payment, eBay, parent company of PayPal, their shares dropped about 6% from the time the event started till the following morning because people are looking at Apple Pay as a threat to PayPal. Yep. But when you look at Apple, the stock, how does it look right now? Stock's about 101 right now. We have it fairly valued at about 107 prior to this announcement. We're, we're, we're firing up the Excel spreadsheet just to take another look. But um, as of now, we're at you know 107, 110 around there. Shares of Lululemon Athletica up 15% this week after second quarter results were better than expected. Jason, was it a good quarter? Was it low expectations or a bit of both? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, you gotta, you got to love the power of low expectations, right? And they certainly benefited from that tailwind. But, you know, I, I think that this was a quarter that shows that this Lululemon ship is not sinking. I think there are some good indicators here that this is a company that's in a bit of a turnaround phase. I think it was mismanaged for a long time. And I think that Laurent Potdevin is doing some good things to get this brand back in order. Uh, The first thing I go to is the direct-to-consumer sales uh, with these these retailers, and they did not disappoint there. Uh, Direct-to-consumer represents uh, more than 16% of their total sales now. That segment grew uh, close to 30% for the quarter. You know, you compare that to something like Under Armour. Under Armour grew that segment 38% for the quarter. It represents 31% of their sales. So I think that shows there is still some room for for Lululemon to get better in that segment. Uh, But, but, you know, the stock stock was really there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of pessimism baked into that stock price which explains the pop and I'm, I'm still cautiously optimistic for these guys Ulta Salon Cosmetics and Fragrance not exactly a household name when it comes to business but the beauty products retail company certainly got Wall Street's attention this week second quarter profits came in higher than expected and shares of Ulta Salon up 20% on Friday James you're a stylish guy what do you think of this? Uh, Emphasis yeah. on ish. <laughs> ish, yeah. You, you got to give credit where credit is due. And by the way, whenever I think of this company, I want to say ultra, but I, I guess they left the R out for, for savings or something. But you know, I, I read an interest. Comps were up 9.6%, by the way, compared to a 5.7% consensus. But there was a Market Watch article citing a, some kind of, I think it was a Cohen analyst saying that Ultra, Ulta has the highest customer satisfaction of any brick-and-mortar store they cover, at like 86%. So it's just amazing how rabid these these fans are of these products. But, hey, you know, give them credit. Now, this is a volatile stock. They've had a similar smackdown at the end of 2013 by sort of a roughly a similar percentage uh, drop, and now they're, now they're back up. So it's, it's, it's risky. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. There's a lot of growth built into this stock price. We actually sold it, on, I guess, unfortunately, depending <laughs> on how you look at it, a while back when we saw growth slowing. And if growth slows, the stock price is not supported. But these numbers are pretty stellar. The, the so margins you give on credit. cosmetic products are, are, are incredible. 
Yeah, and re- and they're supposedly recession-proof as well, too. Alcohol and, and cosmetics, uh, people... But do you like when women wear good, a lot of makeup? Good, I, mean, right? I, I don't. I think I think makeup is advertised so really to get into women. This here? By, I just think it's an honest, honest. Uh, <laughs> I'll go on industry. record yeah. saying I would vote for no makeup or at least less makeup. I I, w- I would too. This is compelling. See, see, James appreciates natural beauty. Moving on to groceries, Kroger's second quarter profits up nearly ten percent, and they also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. That's a good combination. We like to see that, Jason. So why did the stock dip this week? Well, I think this number one. I mean, this is a pretty predictable business. I mean, these these grocery stores run on really razor thin margins, and they they are fairly predictable in, in the repeat sales. You know, they they just it's sort of a known quantity at this point. I think we're in a bit of a new phase here with the grocery grocery business too. I mean, we're seeing a lot of these sort of smaller plays in, in something like you look at our Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, Wegmans, the Fresh Market, all these other little concepts out there that are starting to up their game off. For more of an experience, uh, you know, better products, the organics, the naturals, and things like that. Kroger certainly plays more towards the value side of things, um, and I think that's why their acquisition of Harris Teeter was was wise because it does give them sort of you know a, a step into that demographic where they're competing a little bit more against Whole Foods and those those types of stores uh, directly. Uh, you know, the stock has had an unbelievable last five years, up 150 percent, just killing the market. And, and, and there is going to be some growth. Uh, I think it's going to have to be via acquisition more than any. Anything else, and so I, th- I think it's it's a stock that was priced around eighteen times earnings. It's you know doesn't yield a very strong dividend at this point. So I just I think a lot of the success was already baked into it. Coming up, what's better than one piece of advice? Three hundred pieces of advice. We'll explain. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, James Early, and Ron Gross. Apple was not the only California-based tech company with a big product launch this week. Activision Blizzard unveiled their latest video game, Destiny. It cost a reported $500 million to make. Ron, they got big franchises already, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Skylanders, is Destiny going to be the next big thing for them? Uh, it appears it will be. It's uh, the largest launch that they've had um, in history, um, and they keep doing that each time they it launch seems something. Like which every is launch is the it's, biggest it's, one it's, ever. It's Half really a amazing. Dollars. It's, this is not an easy business. It's similar to the movie business where you, you have to keep uh, reinventing the next blockbuster, and they're doing it. They're doing a great job. Stock's up 30% this year. Um, we own it in Million Dollar Portfolio, and it's it's done really well. And you, you mentioned some of their other franchises. We have new releases coming for Skylar. Lander, Call of Duty, War of Warcraft. There's there's a lot more coming. Um, so this is, this is the spike they need to to get it done. Keep that growth moving forward, and they're doing a great job. I, I think it's interesting because we talk frequently about things like people lining up outside a store, sleeping on the sidewalk overnight to get the new iPhone or the new gadget or yep. whatever. Um, this was a game that they released at midnight Pacific time, three a.m. Eastern time. We have colleagues here at The Motley Fool who set their alarm clocks for 3.30 a.m. so that they could wake up and download. Are they in the tech department here? I'm not going to say. This week, McDonald's submitted a filing to trademark the term McBrunch. Uh, I guess they did that with our friends down the block at the U.S. Patent and Trade Office. Uh, James, McDonald's just had their worst monthly same-store sales drop in more than a decade does this one is this going to help and two does this give us an indication of where they think they need to go to boost sales 
anybody who's over um, 35 will get my analogy. McDonald's is starting to remind me of Melrose Place. I, I used to watch 90210 <laughs> and a little bit Melrose. Before Heather Locklear joined? Well, or? this is the problem. So hey Melrose now. got desperate for ratings, and somebody was getting blown up every other episode. Like, find out who dies next time. And, <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, even even I'm above that. After a while, I just had to stop watching. So the the, the fast and greasy segment is really struggling. It's just no doubt. So, so McDonald's is, is, is doing what they can now. It's true. Who, who hasn't been to McDonald's and, and gotten shut down for, for breakfast because you, you missed the, 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 the time slot? It's, it's ridiculous, right? But I think this is not going to cover up the, band-aid, the, the boo-boo. I don't think that tacking on a mick in front of something necessarily communicates uh, quality in this day and age, right? I mean, McDonald's played on their brand for so long, and that was that was a big advantage. I think that today, it, it's almost becoming a weakness now. The fact that we're sitting here making fun of the McBrunch, I think, is <laughs> is testimony to that. And I'm sure our listeners probably can relate to what we're seeing, too. Uh, well, sticking in this same industry, one of our listeners pointed out Burger King's latest menu option in Japan, which is something referred to as the Black Burger. It's And uh, the photo is amazing because the Imagine a burger where the buns are completely black. They've been darkened with bamboo charcoal. It uh, looks like Batman. The, the burgers are the topped. Audience. Yeah, the burgers the are cheese. topped with the, a sauce uh, with squid ink in it. The ugh. cheese is black. Black dairy just does not seem appealing. <laughs> well, I mean, this like, is a very cultural when thing, I think right? Black for, dairy, I think mold, it's, right? I mean, it's for Japan only, right? <laughs> and Burger King says, "Look, this is the third time we've done this," which indicates to me maybe this is their version of the McRib. I don't know. Like, Possibly. I think. Uh, you know, maybe they look at the McRib the same way we're looking at this. For the tenth consecutive quarter, Radio Shack posted a loss. Shares down more than twenty five percent this week. Uh, they say they are exploring options, including a sale or an investment of some sort. Who who's going to give them money, Jason? Well, hey, listen, they're nothing if not consistent, right? I mean, that's failure <laughs> ten consecutive quarters. That's Let's not sneer at that. Uh, you know, I, I we we've we give Radio Shack a hard time here, and and I you know I, I was watching this past week how the stock played out just based on the headlines of oh wow there may be a cash infusion they may get a hold of some cash the stock skyrockets and I'm thinking nowhere did I see anyone asking that question well what do you think they're going to do with that cash because that's really the point right it's not getting it it's what are you going to do with it and and we were talking earlier in the week about this you know their cash burn has been nothing short of phenomenal when you look at two thousand <laughs> <laughs> they had in 2009 they had 908 million dollars in cash on their balance sheet. Today they've got 30 million dollars left. So I'm not thinking that throwing a little bit more cash their way is necessarily the solution, but I could be wrong. They're down about 95% over the past 3 years. Ron, this is a stock <laughs> that is absolutely in a category we like to call deep value. Deep you, value trap. In in you in, you run the million yeah. dollar portfolio, but you also run a service, MDP Deep Value. Yes, sir. Any interest in shares of Radio Shack? Uh, none, because one of my criteria for that service is I don't pick stocks that are going out of business, and this is probably going out of business. Although in our prediction um, show at the beginning of the year, I did predict that Amazon would buy Best Buy, uh, buy Radio Shack, and use them as a delivery site. And I think, if memory serves me correctly, we we categorized that as make a reckless. Yes, prediction. it was it was yeah. out there. But I, we'll see. Eighty nine cents a share, Ron. We'll it's see. Twelve and a half percent today. I'm feeling a new service here. It's a shorting service, <laughs> deep value trap. I mean, there's something there, guys. Let's talk after. But yeah. to that point, uh-huh. it, it, 
given Jeff Bezos' track record as CEO of Amazon, given the deep pockets that Apple has, and it would be a drop in the bucket for them to buy Radio Shack, and maybe they're going to open more Apple stores just for the real estate, if either one of those companies bought Radio Shack, would it change your opinion? Of Radio Shack? <laughs> As if they changed the business model completely. It's, sure. a, it's a $100 million market cap. It's pretty affordable, right? Yeah. Darden Restaurants is the parent company of several restaurant chains, but it is the Olive Garden chain that accounts for more than half of Darden's revenue. First quarter same-store sales at Olive Garden were down, but... I'm happy to say that help is on the way. The Starboard Value Hedge Fund is Darden's second largest shareholder. This week, they came out with a 300-slide PowerPoint presentation on how Olive Garden can improve their business, and it did include tips on how to cook pasta. Uh, Ron, you know these folks <laughs> I at know Starboard. Them. Back in the day, I knew them quite well. I've done a number of transactions with them. They're actually great guys. Um, listen, if you owned 8% of a, a company that was struggling, you, you'd put together a slide presentation, too, <laughs> as many slides as you needed to get this done. They're trying to take over the board. Um, the company's offered them four board seats. They want all 12 board seats uh, replaced. Um, they really want to take control of this company. They certainly have a lot of suggestions, some of them more, or should I say less funny, such as introducing technology and improving sales of alcohol um, and improving food quality and brand image. Other ones a little bit more funny, like cooking pasta and breadsticks. But at what point do they undermine themselves? Because they, they did include advice like, Add salt to the water when you're making pasta. <laughs> Limit the number of breadsticks. I, I mean, is that guys, all? That's a little bit funny. But is that I mean, Olive Garden's problems that they're losing money on breadsticks? I would say that I, I think we're highlighting that, but I would imagine the presentation did not. I, I got news for you. We're not the only ones highlighting that. If, if you, you just do a news search on Darden, you'll see that there are plenty in the media. I will say fun. my former hedge fund in New York is also an investor alongside Starboard um, in this as well, Barrington Capital. And um, I think these guys really do see the potential to uh, enhance shareholder value, as we like to say. And um, Starboard thinks they can get $20 per share or more if these things are implemented. James, you're a healthy person. You're anti-carbs. Uh, you have to be completely on board with this limit breadstick. Yeah, plan. yeah. I mean, the first place I would go if I wanted to pack on weight is, is, is Olive Garden <laughs> and just load up on, on, on pasta. <laughs> All right, guys, we will see you a little bit later in the show. Well, now we'll go honking, honking, and make every spot town. And we'll go to the park where it's dark and we won't feel well. But if you run short of money, then I'll run short of time. And if you got no more money, honey, I've no more time. Coming up, we will dig into how big data is driving innovations in the casino industry. We're heading to Las Vegas. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. He tried to look like he had a little bit of money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Not so fast, says our guest this week. Adam Tanner is a fellow at the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard and he's the author of the brand new book, What Stays in Vegas, The World of Personal Data, Lifeblood of Big Business, and the End of Privacy as We Know It. Adam, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I don't think I'm alone uh, in being uh, someone who sort of expects that my data is being collected. Uh, certainly Facebook, Google, Amazon, they know a lot about us. I think a lot of people are used to that. And I'll just use myself self as an example. I, I'm not going to Las Vegas every year. So, you know, why should I be worried about what 
casino companies like Caesars Entertainment are doing? The, the book is really about the world of personal data. And so Las Vegas is an interesting form and to look into how it works. And the book goes all sorts of other places through the United States. But uh, Las Vegas is interesting for a couple of different reasons. One is that public records are the basis for a lot of the, the data brokers and for the marketing that takes place. And so in a place like Las Vegas, more people are married there than anywhere else. And that's an important component of records that marketers can get, then get. Um, in Las Vegas, there's very sophisticated use of loyalty programs. And you may not be a, a member of a loyalty program in a casino in Las Vegas, but you are likely a member of an airline loyalty program or a supermarket one or a, uh, a car rental chain or a hotel and so on. And so the sophistication that they've shown in Las Vegas in this department is pretty advanced, and it's interesting to look at how they've done it and what kind of uh, level of detail that they have on individual customers. In other areas, Las Vegas is also pretty advanced, areas such as video surveillance. A big casino might have 3,000, 4,000, even 5,000 uh, cameras looking both at the customers and at the staff. And so there are a lot of interesting issues that spill over across whatever part of the United States or even worldwide you live in. Uh, a lot of that's in play in Las Vegas and elsewhere. So you mentioned the level of detail. What does a casino like Caesars know about someone in their loyalty program? So firstly, I should point out that it's you volunteer to join the program or not. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people do, and only then does the data collection begin. So if you walk in, you have to put your cash on the table, you don't join the program, you can gamble anonymously, they won't know anything about you. But if you join the program, uh, lured by the free uh, drinks, food, rooms, maybe bonus chips, and, and so on, um, they will know an incredible amount of stuff that you do in the public spaces in the casino. So they will know to the uh, exact penny if you, uh, how much you've been playing on the slot machines, how long you've sat there. They may know that you've sat there for three hours and 12 minutes. You've lost $547. The statistical odds say you should have lost $312, so you're having a very poor night. Uh, they may know that you uh, like to eat steak dinners because you've often gone to their steak restaurant and uh, to offset the pain of that big loss that you're having, uh, they may send over your favorite hostess with free tickets to the restaurant so that you still think that that's a great casino. Um, and that's all based on personal data that they've gathered about you. Now, one of the things you write about in the book is something you call the Goldilocks balance. Casinos trying to strike the right balance when they are offering customers incentives what are some of the things that go into that determination? Well, because there is, are these incentives already for quite some time in terms of free meals, free rooms, and so on, many guests come to expect that they should be able to get some kind of incentives for their business. Um, so what the casino needs to do are, is determine who are the valuable customers. One of the interesting things that has been done with data that wasn't possible in the past is to quantify over time who are the valuable customers. And, for example, they've discovered that some people that traditionally were not thought of as big rollers or important uh, casino customers turn out to be very valuable. So it may be a retired uh, woman who goes very frequently to a local casino and spends $80 but comes 50 or 100 times a year. Traditionally, that person might have been under the radar, not gotten the special attention from the management, um, but someone who came and splashed uh, $1,000 or $500 in a single night would. Um, 
so this scientifically measures who are the most viable clients and determines who is supposed to get the benefit. So in the olden days, there was a lot more discretion. The manager might come over, or the, 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 the head of the section of, of wherever you were would say, hey, kid, you've got class. I'd like to give you this coupon for uh, the show tonight. Um, nowadays, it's much more uh, based on the data as to who are the valuable clients. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Adam Tanner, author of the new book, What Stays in Vegas, The World of Personal Data, Lifeblood of Big Business, and the End of Privacy as We Know It. You alluded to the high rollers, uh, the whales, as the casinos like to call them, the biggest customers. The uh, What are some of the more creative things that casinos are doing to keep their whales happy? Because I totally hear you about how someone who comes maybe once a week is very valuable over time, but let's not kid ourselves. They also want the whales. Right, and of course, they want the whales not only on the one occasion, they want them to come again and again. And the I've looked at Caesars, the largest casino company, because they, they have a CEO, Gary Loveman, who comes out of the world of, of academia. He was a former uh, junior Harvard Business School professor, and he developed the concept, or he was made famous on this concept of lifetime value of customers. So someone who buys a slice of pizza for a dollar or two is not worth very much right now, but a lifetime they may be worth seven or eight thousand dollars. And if you buy a car now for fifteen thousand dollars, that's fine, but over a lifetime that may be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the whole concept was to build a rewards program and build a, a system of incentives that would get your client from that that. Um, the retiree coming frequently to your whale coming frequently um, to you to you back again and again and so in the case of the bigger spending casino players the incentives or the rewards would just be much larger you may send a a private plane uh, to to go pick up the person you might have their favorite uh, hostess and sweets and and foods and ever whatever this person wants to bring their business uh, you may roll it out, and if you're very sophisticated in doing it, you can win their loyalty over the long term, and that's what's the most valuable for a casino. Yeah, Gary Loveman's a pretty interesting person because he's got a doctorate in economics from MIT, and that's not really the image of a casino boss that uh, I've come to expect from watching Martin Scorsese movies. Uh, it's, that's right. <laughs> was, the, the town has has changed a lot in recent decades, and. Um, there are many sophisticated uh, data analysts in many of the leading casino companies. And so that old personal style where, where the, 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 the croupier would come by and slap your back and say, you know, how's it going? That, that personal style where the manager might have the discretion is a, a thing of the past, um, and now it's based on sophisticated business analysis. Um, so that's that's what Gary Loveman and, and some of the other people there at Caesars and, and at some of the rival companies have brought to Vegas, which is very different from the past. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Adam Tanner. His new book is What Stays in Vegas, The World of Personal Data, Lifeblood of Big Business, and the End of Privacy as We Know It. What surprised you the most when you were working on this? What surprised me is more the, the scope of... Uh, so many people collecting data, how many, how vast it is across many different layers. Um, and maybe to, to mention the most surprising data collector of all. Um, I had the opportunity in, in this past spring to meet Jimmy Page, the former Led Zeppelin guitarist. Now, if you go to jimmypage.com, his website, to get beyond the very front splash page, he asks you to give uh, your address, your email, and the exact date of birth. 
um, and a few other uh, a few other pieces of detail. So if even Jimmy Page is collecting information about you, um, there are a few businesses that are not. And I think in totality, all these kinds of businesses and the the broad picture that you can draw of someone from many different sources of information is is quite extensive. So what should we be expecting in terms of innovations over the next few years from the Vegas casinos? Well, I mean, the Vegas casinos are just one of uh, a series of examples of people who are collecting it. And I think more and more you're going to get uh, ever more detailed portraits of consumers. There's one aspect of the model we haven't talked about I did want to mention, and that is that the, the casinos not only give you a choice whether or not you're going to share the data, but they give you um, the guarantee that they are going to keep the data and not sell it to others or rent it out to others. And that's a contrast with many other companies um, who are hazy as to what they do with the data or indeed spread it to others. And I think that's an innovation um, or transparency about what they're doing with the data that may come to influence others. I think on the long term, those companies that are most transparent about what they're doing are going to win the long-term trust. And so I think they'll grow more sophisticated in Vegas, but at the same time, some of these models of, of openness and, and uh, transparency that are not always true in today's economy, um, that's stuff that uh, may inspire other companies and other sectors of the economy. So given all the research you've done and all the writing you've done with this book, how has this changed your approach to walking into a Vegas casino. What do you know now about going into a casino that you didn't know then? And to what extent, if any, is it going to change what you do? Well, um, again, as I said, Vegas is just one part of of, a vast data-gathering economy. Um, And my approach, what I'm trying to do in the book is to encourage everyone to think about it for themselves. Now, there may be some people who are very comfortable in sharing data about all sorts of things in all sorts of forms on the Internet and, and elsewhere. Uh, there may be other people who are more cautious and want to um, preserve certain aspects of their life and keep it private. Um, I think just having studied this for the last couple of years and talked to many businesses and profiled them in, in my book, What Stays in Vegas, I, I just encourage people and myself give thought to when I share data, how I share it, um, and sometimes even read the privacy policies of companies as dull as they may be to try to figure out what happens with the data that I and uh, others share. Oh, come on. You're going to make me read the privacy policy? That All of that so, tiny type at the bottom? Can't I just scroll to the bottom and click the box saying, yes, I accept? Well, you can go to, there's a part, what we do with the data. And that's, that's really the key part. And so you can scroll close to the bottom, get to that part, and try to figure out uh, what they do with your data. Um, and that may then speed you down to that other part. It would be nice um, if there could be something like a nutrition box, where a nutrition label box, where you could quickly say what we do with the data and have a quick summary of what goes on, and then you could uh, make your, your speedy next stop the click box at the bottom. But some of these privacy policies are 5,000 words or more, uh, which is quite an onerous read, and I think companies can do a lot more in simplifying at least a summary form of that so that we'll all be informed about what they're doing and then click with some knowledge, really, of what's happening. I know you covered a lot of industries in this book, but I am curious because I know that you did spend a decent amount of time in Las Vegas. So for our listeners who are looking for maybe a couple of tips the next time they go to Las Vegas, it could be something in a casino, it could be a restaurant, just a couple of Vegas tips from Adam Tanner. 
there are many fascinating things that I found in my research beyond the strip as well. And so many of the, the restaurants that I came to most appreciate were further on beyond the strip. And, and there's a whole uh, very vibrant community of Las Vegas life that has nothing to do with the strip where tourists are. So I think um, that's an interesting place to explore as well. It's, it's also quite interesting, the, the vast infrastructure that exists to support the strip and all that you see, you know, giant mounds of, of laundry and giant mounds of all sorts of supplies pouring into the casinos to keep this 24-hour wonderland going. And so if you can catch glimpses of that and, and you know, enjoy that world as well as the regular Las Vegas world of the locals, I think that's, for me, the most satisfying experience. The book is What Stays in Vegas, The World of Personal Data, Lifeblood of Big Business, and the End of Privacy as We Know It. It is available everywhere that books are sold. Adam Tanner, thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much for having me on. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, James Early, and Ron Gross. You can always email us. Radio at Fool.com is our email address. Radio at Fool.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter. At Motley Fool Money is our handle. And guys, this week, there was one business story that generated more email and more tweets from listeners than any story we've seen in a long time. And I am referring, of course, to Olive Garden's promotion of the never-ending Pasta Pass. In case you missed it, the pass gives you seven weeks of pasta salad and soft drinks for $100. Olive Garden sold a 1,000 of them. They did this in less than an hour. They had something like half a million people try and access the website, which, of course, crashed. And our listeners wanted to know just one thing, and that is, of course, what does Steve Broido think about this? <laughs> Did Steve get one? Uh, where does he stand on this get topic? One. Yeah, uh, because, of course, he's the man behind the glass. He is also our resident Olive Garden expert. Now, on last week's show, Steve mentioned that he and his wife were expecting their second baby any moment now. I'm happy to report that uh, their brand new baby boy arrived safe and sound, and all are Woo-hoo! doing well Congratulations, in Steve. his Congratulations, house. Steve. And yet, uh, Matt Greer, our producer, and I were talking, and we felt like the never-ending pasta pass is a topic that transcends paternity <laughs> leave. And so we called Steve to get his thoughts, and Mac, let's roll that clip. Hi, guys. Enjoying some paternity leave here. Um, And while I think the pasta pass certainly makes for a great headline, there can be too much of a good thing, especially for someone like myself who's still recovering from childbirth. (laughs) Put out a little weight, did he? He's recovering. I mean, reco- I mean, what does he mean by how's his that? I think he meant doing? we, maybe we, right? Maybe he, needs, he might need some comfort food, <laughs> or maybe he just meant that. Ah, you know, I was in the delivery room standing, my feet were a little sore. The, the crazy the thing hospital? is that people are reselling these on eBay, and uh, they're not supposedly supposed to be transferable. But the company's going to like work with people who buy them over eBay. There's a secondary Ooh, market for like the never ending. There's a secondary market for everything. Um, <laughs> let's get the uh, the stocks that are on our radar this week. We'll bring in Matt Greer from behind the glass to with a question. Ron Gross, what do you got this week? We just added eight new stocks to our watch list at Million Dollar Portfolio. So I grabbed one that I thought maybe people haven't heard of, so it would be a little more interesting. And that's Dorman Products, D-O-R-M. And they are a maker of aftermarket auto parts. 
and they it's for kind of the do-it-yourself crowd, and they sell them at AutoZone, O'Reilly, Automotive Parts, those uh, kind of stores. Highly profitable, good growth. Doesn't look screamingly cheap, but that's why we have it on our watch list. We're going to dig in. It's a really well-run company. Mac, you got a question about Dorman? Um, what type of work, if any, do you do on your own car? Oh, Mac, I feel like that's a setup. Uh, I take my car into the shop. Is that good? <laughs> I think Check. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, Unlike you. James, who actually knows his way around uh, vehicles. James, what do you got on your radar I am this going week? with a company called Financial Institutions. The ticker is FISI. We always say that in the singular, FISI. Um, this is a very small uh, bank in upstate New York, $380 million market cap, 3.3% yield. They have uh, kept more in deposits than, than they've lent out, which is very, very conservative. This is as conservative and boring as a bank gets, and I, I like it. It's it's not exciting, but it's a very predictable company. It's a bank, and the name of the bank is Financial Institutions? But actually, Financial Institutions, uh, FISI, FISI, is a holding company for Five Star Bank, which is the actual operating bank in, in kind of like Rochester, Buffalo. Actually, not in those markets, but in kind of the rural areas near those markets. And this is where people like still use do-it-yourself car washes and play board games. I mean, this is a very kind of like small-town America type of place. Mac? How much more transparent do you think the small banks are than the big banks? Or do you think you have the same sort of kind of problem where it's really hard to know what's going on? I think they're simpler. Uh, and another benefit of the smaller banks is once they, when they're below $10 billion in assets, that they have significantly lower uh, like filing and regulatory requirements. So that's a, an added benefit. They're just simpler. I don't know how much more transparent, but there's, just, there's less to, to show. I guess. Jason Moser, we've got about a minute left. What's on your radar? Yeah, so listeners know that I am a big fan of Twitter, ticker TWTR. I'm going with Twitter this week because I think there are some some real reasons uh, investors should be excited about this company. I think they have sort of made a little bit of a turnaround from a lot of the pessimism that was in the market there uh, earlier. They just raised $1.8 billion in a debt offering here that I really think was a good move. Uh, you know, this this was very low interest debt. It's convertible debt, and what what that means is the conversion rate on this on this debt implies a, a price of about seventy seven to seventy eight dollars per share versus today's price, which is you know somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty two dollars or so. so. I think you know the big money is betting on this company growing, and so am I. So are we. And uh, Mac, question about Twitter. One person I should follow on Twitter. Wow, one person you should follow on Twitter. Me. <laughs> ah, nice. Follow Shameless me, TMFJ Mo. Hey, you can't follow Ron Gross because, as we say from time to time uh, on our daily podcast, Market Foolery, Ron Gross is not on Twitter. Ron Gross is not on Twitter. Ron hashtag. He signed up at one point. He doesn't do anything with it, however. All right, Ron Gross, James Early, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.